Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 110 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Holly Shimizu all about self-sowing plants, also known as self-seeding plants. Holly is a big fan of herbs, and you'll definitely want to hear the herbs she thinks do best in our region with self-sowing. The plant profile is on another herb, borage, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Holly Shimizu. She is a nationally registered horticulturalist, consultant, and educator living in Maryland. Welcome, Holly. Hello, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. It's been like so long that we've wanted you on, and I'm glad we finally cornered you and got you on. <laughs> Thanks, and I actually really love this uh, topic because it's a really important part of my garden now. Yay. So for our listeners, we're going to be talking all about self-sowing, or sometimes people will call it self-seeding plants, and we'll dive into all of that in a minute. But first, we want to talk about some of Holly's background and her many accomplishments and maybe some of her new projects she's working on. Um, So Holly, let's dial back all the way to baby Holly. Um, And were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? I was born as a nature girl and I loved out being outside. I, I too, I lived outside and I wanted to be um, down by the river. I wanted to be in nature. That's where I was happy. And when my grandfather had a great garden um, with vegetables and fruits and everything up in Rhode Island. And I loved it. I can remember eating warm raspberries and chewing all the parsley plants. And so I didn't like weeding. I mean, I'm not going to say I did, but I did connect with the garden. And when I was a lost soul at the age of 17, wondering what the hell to do with my life, my mother, who was a nurse, said, hey, there's a horticulture school out in Ambler, uh, Temple Ambler. Do you think you want to go see it? And I said, yes, I do. And when I saw it, I'm like, I can't believe this is a career. I mean, I, you know, I could make this a job. And that was, that was how it all started. So, you know, thank God for wise mothers. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. She saw something in you and she put that connection together. Yes. So I know you've been working at many places that would be familiar to our DC area listeners. Maybe we should trace yeah. your career a little bit that way. A few highlights. I, I mean, one of the highlights was after I graduated from Penn State with a degree in horticulture, I went and worked in Europe for three years. And that just expanded my mind. And I learned really good gardening there. Um, we did everything by hand. We didn't use machines. So, And I got exposed to so many plants and gardens and people that it just really expanded my mind. And then um, coming back and living in the D.C. area, I, I was lucky and worked at the National Arboretum, which was my dream uh, job in charge of the National Herb Garden. And I went and worked in Richmond, Virginia at Lewis Skinner Botanical Garden. And I ended up as executive director of the U.S. Botanic Garden. And all of it was just a uh, really a great series of rich experiences. I mean, challenges. I, (laughs) you know, there's a reason we get a paycheck. We have challenges, but at the same time, if you love, I have a passion for horticulture. It's my life. And so it was always my driver and it still is my driver. Plants and gardens and nature and the connection. It's just, it's just what I love. 
So I've been so lucky. I, you know, just would always say that to anyone, you better find something you love because it allows you to put up with the headaches and you keep moving and you keep learning. And it's great. We never retire. We just mm-hmm. keep, we just keep on in our fields of, of plants. And there's so much, it's exciting. Like I am still a student. I'm learning, um, studying. And I, I love that. I don't, I never will stop learning. Mm-hmm. So you officially retired from U.S. Botanic Garden, correct? But you're still involved in a ton of things. I am. I'm still doing a lot of things. I'm involved with the American Horticultural Society and with an organization based in Austin, Texas called the American Botanical Council. I work in my town of Glen Echo, Maryland, um, head of our environmental committee. We also uh, have a place in Lewis where we've been creating a garden, which has been completely fun. And so I, I've lots of activities and busyness, but the garden is the savior because during COVID, the garden was really what, I mean, I was able to be happy and not feel, you know, really awful about it because I had that part of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the garden was solace for a lot of us or a place to retreat to or a place to discover if you hadn't been into gardening that much before the shutdown that really helped. Yeah. So um, that's, that's my very brief summary. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. And I think we should also maybe give a nod to your husband and talk about the fact that you are a family um, and one of your children, a family of horticulturalists and plants men and plants people. And one of your children is getting into the field. It's true. So my husband, Osamu, is Japanese, um, and he is a garden designer, garden design build. He had a business for 40 years, Shimizu Landscape Design. And then our son, surprisingly, got really into plants and gardens through an internship at the National Tropical Botanical Garden in Hawaii and uh, came back and worked for his father as a laborer and got a master's degree in sustainable landscape design from GW. And so now he's really into it. Um, He runs the business now. He's really very keen on um, native plants and sustainable gardens and, but he'll, he'll do really what, whatever people want, but it's great to see that younger people his age are really interested in rain gardens, natives, birds, the, you know, really um, kind of combination of horticulture with nature, which we're seeing a lot more of. You know, he and I go to nurseries together and travel to gardens, and we, it is a family thing. Like my sister, and he said, what choice did I have? All we ever did was go to gardens, and, you know, (laughs) uh, my parents would fight about Latin names of plants growing on the roadside, and we'd stop, and it's a joke. You know, but it was true. We did. We, you know, we'd be like, no, it's a Carex. No, it isn't. And it was stupid, but we did it. We don't do it now because as you get older, you get wiser and realize that life's <laughs> too short. Like, I think I'm not arguing about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't matter who's right at a certain point. <laughs> it really doesn't. It really doesn't. I'll look it up on my phone and find out. Exactly. So the family of horticulturists, and you had mentioned travel a little bit, so we should probably talk a little bit about the trips that you organized for an American Hort Society. Yeah, so I'm lucky, I've been lucky to be a host on some of their travel, which is over-the-top phenomenal, I have to say. I mean, a couple of people have said, oh, Holly, it's expensive. I say, well, I will tell you, you get what you pay for. Because the I, I really don't organize the details, thank God, because I wouldn't be good at it. The people who do just get us into places. We never feel like a tourist. We get into private gardens and castles and ancient houses. And we just do these amazing garden and plant things. And I, I just find it so educational, inspirational. And I've also made a lot of friends and... It's, it's a really great program, and I'm really happy that American Horticulture Society, the, we've saved River Farm, it will never be sold, and we're really on track now to 
really develop some really strong programs and kind of, you know, a rebirth, which we all have to do in order to find our relevance in the world as it changes. Mm -hmm. And I think it does take a crisis sometimes to point out the worth of something that might be gone. I think you're right. People took it for granted and then it was threatened and then people rallied around it, which was fabulous. It's so true. We have like amazing volunteers. We have great people in our community and then just so many people who care not just about River Farm, but also AHS and, you know, finding a way of voice and a way to speak to, you know, even potentially new gardeners. You know, we want really to expand into young people and very diverse audiences from different climates and all of that. And as you know, it's it's not easy to do, but we, we feel up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. And before we move into our main topic, I should note to listeners that I had the pleasure of visiting both of Holly's garden, the one in Lewis, Delaware, and the one in Glen Echo, Maryland. And maybe we should fill in the listeners what those gardeners are like. They're very different gardens and very different ages. Um, Maybe let's start with the Lewis, Delaware one. Okay, well, so we've been working this garden for about seven years, and it's really different because we have good drainage and a really good soil, and I've never had that before. And so since the soil drains well, plants are really happy. There's oxygen in the soil for the plant roots, and it's easy to weed in as well. But most of all, the plants just grow so beautifully, and things grow, things are really hardy here. I have gorgeous camellias. I mean, even the house plants, spider plants are hardy here. They're not supposed to be. And all these things, they just thrive. I have hardy fuchsia, hardy lantana. And it's really like this fun experiment here to see what thrives. I have a pomegranate, which produces edible pomegranates. And it's very unusual, I think. But the other thing that I've really enjoyed here is making my dooryard garden. And that is in front of the house. The house was built in 1730. And I always wanted to build a dooryard garden because I visited some in New England. And it would have been typical in an early American home to put in the front the dooryard garden, which is where the woman would go out to harvest those plants which were essential to life for flavor, for medicine, for tea, for fiber, for, you know, whatever, because the vegetable garden was usually further away from the house, fenced, and it would be a trek to get there. So the dooryard is where you had those things, you just walk right outside and um, and then bring inside as needed. So the front garden is a, a version of a dooryard garden, but it's not just herbs. I put in plants for fragrance and native plants and some other things, but that it's been very, very rewarding to create a new garden. And I've really, really enjoyed it. And I have so many interesting plants that I, you know, study and watch. And then I use a lot of them in my still. Because, mm. you know, I distill them and then use the oils and hydrosols or floral waters in different products. I don't have a business. I just do it for my own interest and fun and I give them away. Wow, fascinating. And so I think that part, the beach part of Delaware in Southern Delaware is probably zone eight at this point. Yeah, it must be. I mean, it may not be defined that way, but yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Where we are is is that way. And the the other thing here in Lewis about the garden is we actually have six fountains and they're not high maintenance fountains, but they are they make beautiful sounds, water music, and it's so peaceful. And we have fabulous birds because I really plant for them. I don't put food out. What I do is I put plants that they love either for nectar 
or seeds or and and butterflies and it that has been very incredibly rewarding and then your glen echo home and garden is also on a historic property as well yeah that house was built in about 1898 part of the chautauqua community of glen echo and that garden we started about 35 years ago and we wanted a water garden and so we put in a pool with a little small waterfall and stream the pool was a swimming pool at first but i mean it was black and it's you know it's naturally designed but now it's a bio pool so it has fish and it's the sound that we really love but the plants have gotten very tall, and so it's our gardens now are really shady. One change, though, I'm making gradually. When we planted that, we did use a lot of Japanese plants, Japanese maples and akubas, um, and we Japanese maples have turned out to be really quite the weed in our garden, and so mm-hmm. it's just how it happens sometimes, but. As I'm replacing things, I am incorporating more natives, and I'm just doing that over time. We have quite a few natives, but I'm just focusing more on them now as I have, and we have all learned more about their really important benefits. And the Japanese maple, since our overall topic is self-sowing or self-seeding plants, and it is sowing itself a little too prolifically around? Yes. Well, actually, in both of our gardens, this this year in particular, for whatever reason, I, I, I'm telling you, the Japanese maples were truly everywhere. I weeded and weeded and weeded. And I am an organic gardener, and so I do this by hand. And I think I've gotten most of them, but um, they they truly were the worst of plants in terms of uh, seeding. So it hasn't happened before. And I always acknowledge that every year is different. <laughs> you know, you just don't know what mm-hmm. what it might be. But that that one in particular was um, was a, a serious plant reseeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one tree that recedes everywhere for me that's just a, a pain in the tuchus, I'll say, <laughs> is mulberry. And I don't have any mulberry, but there are mulberry trees down the street, both the white and the dark uh, buried ones. And yeah. they just recede everywhere from the, the real, it's really the birds pooping out the seeds. That's it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and this is, this is just the nature of gardening really depend. And, um, and I, you know, I accept it, but I do think I, I might cut the seeds off the, the particularly bad maple, I think. So I don't have to do that again. I really did. I had to spend many hours pulling them out. Hmm. Well, let's turn to some more positive reseeders and resowers. So we'll start with your, um, herbs as the first category maybe because that's your your most love plants of category i think that's the one that's your passion i i believe yeah so um i yeah i thought that it was a good one to start with kathy is cilantro the cilantro and coriander are the same plant and cilantro are the leaves and we use those a great deal in in cooking and so i have an area where they seed because they are a short-lived annual and they're abundant in in spring and in fall but my goal was to try to get them for longer periods and so what i did is i got seeds of longer leaf producing cultivars from johnny's and i got a few different ones and um I would sow them periodically, like every, say, two to three weeks. So I've ended up with a, a, a an area where I have cilantro almost year-round. And so it's very rewarding. And um, I, I, you know, I always let them go, go to seeds and I spread the seeds. But I, I do get a long period of harvestability and so it's just basically, it ends up as a circular area about mm-hmm. maybe 
two feet by two feet where it there's always cilantro. I just kind of leave that space for cilantro. So that's a really good one. I don't, I never have to buy it. It's, it comes back constantly. Good. And I was going to say at the baby stage of cilantro, it's still edible. So, you know, any of the tiny plants you can pluck out if it sows itself pretty thickly and use that. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, the seed itself, coriander, makes a, a great herb and additive right. as well. But I was going to say that a lot of people in our region have trouble with cilantro because it doesn't like the heat exactly. and humidity. So um, what's your trick for getting it through the summer? Do you put a cover cloth or anything over it? You know, I don't. So my trick is um, I may not have a huge amount in the heat of summer. Like if I go out there right now, what I'm going to seed or a lot of plants um making seeds, but I'm going to find some plants with leaves. And that's because I have, I can't separate them now, but I've mixed in different selections and I've sown them at different times. And so I really end up with longer periods of harvestability. So that's what I do. And I do like getting, I've been happy with my seeds from Johnny's up in Maine. They have some, you know, really good selections. And so that that has worked. That's a great point to um, combine different varieties and not just the same one over and over again. So then you do have those overlapping time periods and seasons. Yeah. And um, one of the things I wanted to mention to related to my plants like cilantro, which I love to self-seed, is I don't use the traditional or usual mulch, um, you know, just plain shredded hardwood bark. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, what I'll use is uh, shredded composted leaves. They will break down faster. They will build the soil um, nutrients and make it easy for a lot of these plants that want to seed. So I think the mulching is key Mm -hmm. in my case because I have so many plants that I like to reseed. Yeah, that's so true that I always advise people not to heavily mulch if they want reseeding, of course. Yeah. So you don't completely leave the soil bare because you right. obviously want to hold in moisture and, and knock back some of the weeds, but you do need to allow those seeds to hit the ground at some point. I do. And and one of the things I love doing is um, I call it scratching. And I did this when I worked at the National Arboretum where I have a little three pronged thing and I scratch the soil a bit. So when I spread the seeds, if I do, I don't always, I have to admit, but I will scratch them in so they'll have good contact with the moisture in the soil. Some will get covered. And so another herb that I Um, have really come to love and it self-seeds it needs to grow in shade and it too like cilantro is a short-lived annual is chervil and the latin name is anthriscus cirifolium it's something that's used a great deal in france Hmm. chervil c-h-e-r-v-i-l and it tastes like a combination of french tarragon and parsley And I don't get much during the summer. It's, you know, just one of those things. But I get a lot in fall, even winter. It's very cold hardy and spring. So I make sure to spread the seeds around. And it's you use it fresh. I don't like to cook it. Um, I just but you, you will find it is so fantastic with most foods. It's, you know, you don't even need to list the foods. You just put it on, whether it's a salad, whatever it is, it's really good. Another herb which comes up and I, you know, this, this just does what it wants to do. I find it here and there is dill. When people say, oh, well, when should I buy dill plants? I always say you shouldn't buy dill plants. You should start seed because they germinate quickly. And then once you have them, you continue to have them if you, you know, just sprinkle seeds around. And that pops up just kind of here and there. And I love the spontaneity of, of dill showing up. And 
it's an important plant for butterflies and caterpillars and and I use I use the leaves in in food um, but I also love the flowers the yellow umbels are just so beautiful and so that's another one of the herbs that I um, pretty much rely on it's it's self-sowing in the garden and it it, it doesn't let me down I was going to say that dill, because it's a little bit tall and thin, so, you know, it it can seed itself around in a bed and mix in well, but it likes to migrate to pathways. I don't know if you find that too, that it always comes into the part where you don't want it to come because you're like, I'm stepping there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true too. And so... Yeah, that reminds me of another one of the herbs that is a very welcome reseeder, and that's my sweet chamomile. That's the the wonderful mm. herbal, best herbal chamomile for tea, and it's also called German chamomile, but it is a short-lived annual blooming in the spring, and then it dives back, but it's I I have it in my walkways, which is where it seems to like to germinate. And I leave it there. And then I tell people, just walk on it. It's okay. I don't think (laughs) it minds. You know, it seems to withstand it. And it blooms and it reseeds. And I harvest it. I I make tea and I um, use it in the still. And so it's just a welcome reseeder. And that does bring up, Holly, the difference between German chamomile and Roman. That's right. Um, And then maybe a little aside about Latin names and that we're mainly using common names here, but where you can, you'll sprinkle in the Latin. And it's important with herbs, I find, because if you say, as an example, if you just say chamomile, well, we don't really know which one we're talking about. So it's, you have to really focus on, you know, is it the sweet chamomile or is it the Roman chamomile? But an even better example would be oregano, because if you say oregano, that is referring more to a smell than it Mm -hmm. is to a plant, because Mm. there are 10 different kinds of plants that smell and taste like oregano. If you go to the nursery to buy oregano, you're probably, it's a difficult choice because a lot of times they really might not have the best one. That's where it's its so, to me, I use the Latin names to be sure I'm, I'm getting the right plant. And, you know, what selection do I have? Because a lot of them are, have hybridized and you, you might end up with the oregano that has no flavor or fragrance and you don't want that. Yeah. And some are, are, have been bred for variegation and for flowering or pollinator use. So uh, if you're looking for it for culinary use or medicinal use, you definitely want to get that right Latin name. And I was just going to make an aside to say that uh, episode 40 of the Garden DC podcast, we spoke with Marianne Wilburn about botanical Latin and plant labels. So that might be a good one for people who want to learn more about common names in Latin and the usage. Yes. Yes. So I I think it's important for that reason. And um, one of the other herbs that uh, I've really come to love again, I didn't like it for a while, and that's rue, R-U-E, rue de graviolens. And that's because um, I get a rash from it, which is similar to poison ivy, if I touch it. On a, on a hot day and um, I don't have any, you know, it's my, my warm skin, I'll get a rash. But I love it now because it's a really important plant for uh, swallowtail butterflies. It's a host plant. And so I see lots of gorgeous caterpillars in my rue. It reseeds here and there and it's a, it's a perennial. I don't have the heart to pull it out because it's so it's beautiful with this sort of grayish blue foliage and because it's so beloved by um, butterflies I keep it and I mean I might not keep it everywhere but I keep it in places and then I'm just careful to work with it on a day when it's not too hot Mm -hmm. and you know maybe in the morning or the evening and that way I, I haven't had an issue with it. That's one of the other herbs that I, I can't I enjoy when it comes up, it pops up here and there. One of the talking about some of the flowers 
that really make this garden here in Lewis, Delaware look fabulous in late summer are four o'clocks. And they've been, I plant, I, I really am interested in fragrance. And so I was happy to start some seeds of four o'clocks. Their Marvel of Peru is the other name. I, you know, they open in the late afternoon, evening, and they're in multiple colors and they're really fragrant. And they have been perennial here, which is very surprising. And they've been generous um, reseeders so that they make the garden look gorgeous in late summer. They tend to, some of the flowers that I'm going to mention, don't, they, the seeds, seedlings really start to appear when the soil gets warm. So it's really maybe in May, depending on how the season goes. So I've become very astute at determining, okay, what is that? As these little teeny things are emerging from the soil to decide, okay, keep it, or is it, do I need to transplant it? Or is it a weed? And so that's really a part of this is to pay attention, you know, in that early spring or even mid, early, mid, late spring to what's coming up and determining if, if it's what you want. With the four o'clocks, I, I kind of had let them, one year I let, there were too many of them basically. And, and the risk there is, you know, oh my gosh, they'll choke other things out because they're just so happy. And so I have to be careful and maybe cut them back or be thoughtful about how many I keep and where I keep them. Hmm. And so glad you brought up recognizing what the tiny seedlings look like uh, of the ones you want to keep. So that's a big thing to know in self-sowing and self-seeding plants because you can have, you know, a hundred tiny marigolds popping up and you can mistake them for, I don't know, cilantro, maybe, <laughs> if you're not aware and then letting the wrong thing grow up or plucking the wrong little baby. And I think we all gardeners have had that experience of overweeding one time and we took out the thing that we wanted to le let self-sow and that's always heartbreaking. It's true. It does take a lot of patience because, you know, they wait until the conditions are right and then they germinate when they're ready. And so if you're, you know, an impatient person, you'll sometimes, you know, pull them out. But if you wait just a little bit, you can pretty much identify them um, as they start to take their little shape. And so that's what I do. I just wait until I'm pretty sure I, I know what they are. And then uh, they don't mind. I move them around as long as I will sprinkle water on them uh, to make that transition. Of course, that's the key if we're moving them about is that we have to gently, gently water mm -hmm. them. And I'm imagining a shady day is probably better than a really hot, sunny day. Yeah, and a morning is always, you know, a cooler time of day and uh, and a cooler, just a cooler day all around is, is better. You're right. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you're self-sowing or letting plants self-sowing, you have to have a little patience, um, as you said, to get them to the stage where you would recognize them. So you can't just have perfection. <laughs> you have to wait wait it might be a little messy for the transition time because if you want to have perfect all the time that's not going to happen it's just like you know that i always call it that rough teenage preteen stage yeah <laughs> that means you're so yeah, right a little gangly but you'll get there yeah exactly and so we had that recently with um, a beloved annual which isn't too common and it's the Peruvian zinnia. It's just zinnia peruviana. It's an annual zinnia, but it was a true star in the garden last year. And it had reseeded from, I, we bought a few plants and then it reseeded and it was so beautiful. It was a, a compact, relatively compact zinnia, not one of the really tall ones. And it receded so that it was growing along the walkway. So it was kind of 
like a little hedge of flowering zinnia, beautiful and just um, so stunning and, and so covered with flowers. And uh, so this year, because of loving it so much, we had harvested seeds and we had scattered seeds and we've been watching carefully and it did finally come up. And so we've moved some around and now they're blooming, but they did have a period when they looked, when we had moved them and they look a little, you know, stressed and, um, but they've, they've taken hold now and they're really looking solid. And so they've, they've made the move. Okay. And I always thought there should be, you know, some type of guidebook published or maybe even on the seed packs, what the tiny seedlings look like, right? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. it comes with experience, you know, I can completely readily recognize when a radish or a carrot or whatever vegetable seedlings are popping up versus weeds. But some of those flowers are really hard to tell the difference. Well, yes, and I've I've gotten used to some that I've come to depend on. Um, like another one I mentioned is the um, Madagascar periwinkle. The um, annual vinca has become a very generous cedar, and so I love it and wait to see where it's coming up, and then if needed, kind of move it around when it's young and sprinkle it. And it's, it's so beautiful. Of course, I never know, you know, well, what flower colors will they be? And they're always varied, but I don't mind that. I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, as I said, I, I like the surprises that self-sowing plants provide. And they usually are very happy because they've, you know, they've opted to grow there. That's been their choice. They're, they like it there. And uh, one herbal plant I did um, mean to mention that shockingly reseeds and is vigorous is sweet Thai basil. And I, we love that one in cooking. And so I'm so, is so thrilled to see it emerging. And if I can't quite tell if that's what it is, I can gently rub the leaf and I can tell because of the fragrance, <laughs> but it, you know, I have to be gentle because it's, you know, it's a little youngster. Hmm. Yeah. I would say scent or, you know, maybe even pinching a tiny leaf off can give you a big, a big, big clue. And so we were also going to talk about some self-sowers that are perennial and natives. That's right. So, well, one of the um, one of the native plants that self sows here, surprisingly, and it, it is a perennial, but I've always found it to be a short-lived perennial, is um, the cardinal flower, Lobelia cardinalis, and the stunning red flowers are beloved by the hummingbirds, and it just comes up here and there, and and um, I I can't ever imagine not keeping one of the plants when it does that. And so we always have a good stand of it for the hummingbirds. And one of the other um, uh, perennial plants that comes up a lot is um, the evening primrose, the one called Tina James Magic. And that is not actually a native, but the Tina James magic is one that she, Tina James, I never met her, but supposedly garden writer in Baltimore, but was selected because it has these gorgeous, huge yellow flowers that are fragrant that pop open. And I was introduced to it one, years ago, going to a party at a farm where we took bets on which one would open next because it's just so fun to see them kind of pop and you know it gives off the fragrance and is important for uh evening and night pollinators for moths 
and it's it's a fun plant to grow. The leaves actually look like dandelion, so one has to be careful. And it grows like a biennial more than really a perennial. It it um, you you'll you have the the leaves the year one, and then you'll have the flowers in year two. And so I try to keep different years alternating years so I always have some in bloom because it's so fun so um, that's one of the reseeders that I pretty much count on do you have some favorite ones that that you kind of count on in your garden yeah definitely verbena bonariensis the Brazilian verbena or sometimes called verbena on a stick Um, I love that one I love having that sprinkled all around and pretty much in my vegetable plot marigolds are always receding or I you know snip off a couple of the dried heads and make sure to save those just in case they don't recede yes you had mentioned the Thai basil and I was going to say holy basil or Tulsi has been one that's receding successfully for me in the back of the vegetable plot every year and I was not expecting it but I found it really to be a prolific reseeder and Oh, that's interesting. Especially because the seeds aren't that easy to find in the first place. So once you have it, you know, it seems like you'll have it. Okay. Oh, and I wanted to mention another native, Kathy, Mm -hmm. and that is the New York ironweed, Vernonia. So that is a perennial, but it's also really a happy reseeding native plant. And... I ended up, I started, oh, about six years ago with one plant that I bought at a nursery and it did so well. It reseeded in my garden, then it reseeded in the neighborhood. And I was so happy because the New York ironweed is, you know, it's a tall, this is the one, the species Nova Borosensis, and it's a tall one. It gets like five or six feet. And covered with these purple, fluffy um, tufts of flowers in late summer. And it's really beloved by many butterflies and pollinators. And it's beautiful. So um, it's been great to see it in other people's gardens where they you know, maybe weren't sure what it was. And then they let it stay. And so it's kind of spread around the neighborhood. Nice. I would say one native that prolifically recedes for me that maybe neighbors aren't too happy about is goldenrod because (laughs) it gets a little too happy. And that does, you know, that's where your editing and your gardening comes in and that either you snip off the seed heads before they fully form, but I like to leave them up for the goldfinches and, and thing and other birds. So then I'm not snipping them off, but then I have to deal with it on the other end of just pulling them where they pop up and they're not needed. Yeah. And um, I have another perennial, but it's a short-lived perennial, which comes up vigorously here and there is the anise hyssop. And that's really good for the bees. Yeah. I've had that come up in my driveway cracks of all places. It really likes it there. It does. I mean, I find that those um, agostikes or however one likes to pronounce it, they love to come up in, in those dryish cracks and crevices. So I, you know, I, I always, I always look for them. And again, sometimes I have to smell the leaves when they're little to be sure that's what it is because I have a weed that looks quite a lot like it. Yeah. I always say that there are certain weed lookalikes out there yes. that of course, probably for their um, survival and, you know, s- somewhere in their breeding, they twin themselves with a useful plant that human cultivated. So there's always something out there like, um, you know, dandelion and the lyre leaf sage. That that's a good one to say. Both are useful herbs, but one of them imitated the other at some point. Yes, yes. Oh, and there's another plant which I also really count on, 
coming every year and that's my Columbine. And I know that a lot of books will say they're perennial, but I do find them to be really, um, if they are perennial, they're short lived, but as a reseeder, they've been really top performing plants. My Columbine, especially my, the native one, um, I think it's often called the wild Columbine, red and yellow. And, oh, it's such a happy spring thing that, that comes up. Yeah, so true. And if you do lose one of those short-lived perennials, you know, you can rely on maybe if you collected some seed or that it will self-sow itself. That's right. That's right. So I always, before, you know, um, I always sprinkle the seeds around. And so I've really come to kind of look forward to it. And when you're sprinkling the seeds around, you were talking about scratching them in, but do you do like a top dressing of a little bit of topsoil or anything on top of those? Um, I might. So yeah, I'll, I'll sprinkle them in and then um, I probably will scratch it just a little bit and then I might just leave it. Um, That's what I often, often do is just scratch it a bit. That, that usually seems to work if, I mean, that's if I have a loose soil top. If I didn't have loose soil, I think I probably would, you know, take some soil and maybe sprinkle it over top. You know, there there's a plant that I want to get established here and I want to have it reseed. And that's the, um, the opium poppy and the California poppy. And... Um, I, I love, I love poppies period. I'll just say annual poppies. And so I think I'm going to just start with some plants and then hopefully get them to seed and get them to come up on their own as reseeding plants. I think maybe in your Lewis, Delaware garden where you have much better drainage because yeah, those of us with clay soils, it's, it's really rough trying to get poppies to come back year after year. Yes, that's it. So I, I'm not, I'm not giving up. I'm, I'm going to keep trying because um, I just love those papery poppy flowers. They're so pretty. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Holly, for sharing your love of self-sowing and self-seeding plants and for sharing also about your background and a little bit about your gardens. And let's talk for a second about your newest project, which is a children's book, and then we'll let listeners know how to contact you. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, so I, I've i been studying art, taking art classes through Glen Echo Park, which I love. And so I decided um, that I wanted to have a focus. And in the meanwhile, in Glen Echo, I really, I love frogs and I really wanted to have frogs in my garden. And so I checked into what they really need and they need, you know, moisture, shade, um, and, and kind of a, me- a bit of a mess with le- what we think of as a mess with leaves and, you know, insects and so forth. So I dedicated an area to just what they wanted. And I didn't have this drive to go sweep it and clean it. And I just let it be. It was near a fountain. So it was nice and moist. And, and sure enough, I got this beautiful frog who came and basically lived there when I would, um, and he still lives there. And I called him Figgy. And then occasionally there's another one who comes and I called her Fiona. And so around them, I ended up writing a book called Figgy and Fiona Search for a Home. And um, why I, I, I would love to encourage gardeners to think about ways they could have habitats so that more creatures might live there. And I'm not Obviously, for me, aesthetics are really important, and I'm married to a garden designer, so um, I always I have to, you know, work with him to say, look, we're not gonna touch the leaves there, we're not gonna keep it clean. So, kind of an off the main part of the garden area where you just let it be, 
And that can really work. And I've found um, getting a little wilder, you know, you can, you can really create a habitat. So it made me very happy. And it ended up being a very fun book for me to write and to do the illustrations. And now I'm working on another one. And um, I, I'm moving along. It's about an owl. And uh, so that's, that's very fun. Of course, all related to plants and habitat and, you know, the, how everything is interdependent, of course, mm-hmm. for, for food and habitat. So anyway, that's, that's been very fun. And I hope to continue doing that. And the name of that book about the frogs is Figgy and Fiona Search for a Home. To contact you, they would go to your website. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way. And it, it's just my name. It's just um, hollyshimizu.com. And I'm very good about answering and giving and then I'll give people my my email and help however I can. Well, thank you, Holly. And I will include a link to your website in the show notes. Um, so that will be easy for folks to click on and follow up and order that book for the children or the children's book lovers in their life and to follow up with any questions they might have. And I want to thank you again, Holly, for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Borage Plant Profile Borage Borago officinalis is an annual herb that originates in the Mediterranean. It has bright blue star-shaped flowers and hairy prickly leaves. It is hardy to USDA zones 2 through 11. It's a terrific pollinator garden choice and attracts many kinds of butterflies as well as hummingbirds. Borage is also a great choice for the vegetable garden to attract bees when planted near tomatoes and strawberries. It's easy to grow from seed. Borage prefers full sun and well-draining soils. If you grow it in a container, put it in an unglazed terracotta pot. It will die when hit by a hard frost at the end of the growing season, but it can self-sow in subsequent years. Borage does not need fertilizing. The only care it requires is to deadhead the spent blooms. It is both deer and rabbit resistant. This versatile herb plant is said to have several medicinal uses, such as treating fevers or as a sedative. In the kitchen, the edible flowers are sweet and look delightful on top of a dessert. They can be added to ice water or cocktails for a refreshing cucumber-like taste as well. Borage, you can grow that. What's new this week in the garden? Well, I'm back from my summer travel to the Garden Bloggers Fling in Madison, Wisconsin that was postponed for two years due to COVID and finally happened. So it was great to meet up with other garden communicators and tour lots of beautiful private and public gardens in the Madison, Wisconsin area. I saw tons of incredible clematis vines, lots of beautiful trees, and of course ate my fill of cheese curds. After that, I journeyed over to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware and looked at a bunch of private gardens there. In my uh, travels around town and Lewis, Delaware, I also visited a small vineyard and a couple farmers markets. Back home, our community garden is bursting and we have a couple tomatoes already. Our tomatoes do have early blight signs, which is in keeping with the hot and humid and wet weather we've been having. So we just pinch out the 
diseased leaves and be sure not to compost them, but to throw them away with the landscape waste um, in the trash. And uh, we dug our first third of the garlic bulbs and they're nice and big. Um, so I will be digging the other two thirds this week and replacing them with zucchini and squash and probably some cucumber in that spot. Um, in my home garden, what's looking fabulous this week is the endless summer summer crush hydrangea and it is just covered with big balls of pink i would say fluorescent pink almost blooms and i think i'm going to go out there in a bit and cut a few to make some indoor bouquets and i'll just cut them from discrete areas so they don't show too much um, that they were cut from people passing by and I want to share a couple local upcoming events. The first is the Montgomery County Farm Tour, and that takes place Saturday, July 23rd and Sunday, July 24th. Um, it's mainly in the Ag Reserve of Montgomery County, Maryland. There's 19 farms, orchards, and vineyards on the tour. They're free and open to attend. They'll be selling food and drink and farm experiences. So pick a few farms to visit and check that out. You can find out more about that at montgomerycountygov. Ah, montgomerycountymaryland.gov. Sorry about that. And then um, another great event to check out is it to visit the Temperance Alley Garden, which we covered in the November 2021 issue of Washington Gardener magazine. So that's a small community gathering garden in the U Street neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And they have several upcoming events um, to gather the neighborhood from yoga and group meditation to book circles and mindfulness. They also have regular volunteer hours in the garden on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2, um, and you can help them tend their raised beds, harvest veggies, and water. And you can check that out at the Temperance Alley Gardens page. And uh, the last upcoming event I wanted to share with all of you was that we are co-hosting a garlic festival at the Tacoma Farmer's Market on Sunday, July 24th. And that will be with Main Street Tacoma and the Tacoma Horticultural Club. And we'll have more details posted on that soon at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And it's a little festival. It's not a huge event, but a couple of booths in the farmer's market. And we share how to grow garlic. We share some garlic cloves to get you started. And those are meant for growing, not for eating. And also answering your garlic questions. And we might be joined by a chef, I believe, who will be giving out garlic tastes. And various vendors throughout the farmer's market will also be sharing their garlic-related wares for sale. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. When you need 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.